Coming up, subversity with Dan Sung. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. On the heels of the outcry over the Blackwater massacre, uh, there's another um, contractor in Iraq who this time has uh, shot and killed uh, two uh, Armenians in Iraq. Just as Congress is about to uh, two Iraqi Christians who are Armenians have been shot. And just as Congress is about to go to a full vote on the Armenian genocide, calling it a genocide, why doesn't Congress call it a genocide? Because of pressure from Turkey. Turkey is an ally in the war on Iraq and has threatened to stop supporting the U.S. Um, support trails if Congress calls this genocide a genocide. Uh, we'll bring you an encore edition of our talk with an Armenian American journalist who was uh, intimately involved in this issue. Um, he was his article in the Larry Times on the Armenian genocide was spiked by the editor, an editor at the LA Times, uh, accusing him of uh, being political about this issue, uh, signing a so-called petition when he did not. Um, so we're going to be talking with Mark Arax, a noted journalist who's been covering a lot of the uh, the repression at our state prisons uh, also. Uh, he had to leave the Times because of this uh, this kind of censorship. He didn't, he actually made an out-of-court settlement with the Times and he left. But ironically, the editor who killed his story also left to go on to Ankara, Turkey uh, to be the Wall Street Journal correspondent there. Uh, so that's the irony of politics. Even in a mainstream newsroom, how the Armenian genocide affects even news coverage of a mainstream newspaper here in the Southland. Uh, so we're going to be going to this uh, audio feed of an earlier interview we did with Mark Arax, former writer for the Los Angeles Times. We'll be doing that momentarily and uh, we'll be uh, getting to that in a second. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Here's the Subversity Show with Dan Zhang. Okay, uh, today we're, we're talking with uh, Mark Arax, who's a journalist and a writer and recently left uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, in a highly publicized uh, situation. Yeah, what happened? Uh, why did you leave the LA Times? I left, I left the LA Times uh, over an issue of censorship. I uh, did a story in uh, February, March. I was reporting a story about the Armenian genocide. And uh, there was an Armenian genocide uh, resolution going through Congress to recognize uh, the atrocities against the Armenians in 1915-1918 as genocide, which almost every serious historian and Holocaust uh, scholar, you know, recognizes as genocide. So I was doing a piece on the politics of the genocide resolution and how this resolution was dividing the Jewish community. There were mainstream Jewish organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, uh, led by Abe, Abe Foxman, who were siding with Turkey in trying to deny the genocide. And then there were other Jewish groups, Jewish intellectuals, Jewish Holocaust scholars, who were um, upset at that because they felt that the, you know, the last folks who should be the last community that should be 
participating in a denial of, of, of a genocide, uh, you know, should be the Jewish community. So there was an internal debate going on in the Jewish community, and my piece explored that debate. Okay. Um, the piece was written, it was edited, it went all the way up the line, it was scheduled for the front page, and then at the 11th hour it was killed by uh, managing editor Doug France. That's when I, um, you know, then wrote France and asked why, and he gave reasons that essentially had to do with my ethnic background. The fact that I was Armenian somehow precluded me from writing this story, when in fact I had written previous stories over the over the past 20 years, you know, here and there about the Armenian genocide. So um, he also mentioned a, a memo. You yeah, he cited. Right. Yeah, that's right. He cited um, a memo that. I had written with five other colleagues, and I can give you a bit of background about that about that memo. He, um, for whatever reason, described it as a petition. It was not a petition. Uh -huh. I think the reason he did that is because it would portray me as some kind of advocate. Um, in fact, it wasn't a petition. It was an internal memo to our editors. Uh, the memo was written because the paper kept putting the word alleged in front of genocide, and doing other things that kind of, um, um, you know, weaken the idea that this was a genocide. After three or four of these um, these these qualifiers, these equivocations, uh, we decided in 2005 to write a letter to our editors. The editors thanked us for the letter. In fact, we were required by our own code of ethics to inform them that we were we were making an error in our in our coverage of the genocide. Um, our own uh, style book, our own policy at the times was that the Armenian genocide was a genocide and there's no need for equivocation. So we wrote this letter reminding our editors of that. They made some, they, they actually made a correction to a couple of the stories. Um, and we were thanked and that was the end of it. Then two years later, I've written this story. France has killed the story and he cites this memo except that he calls it a petition and says that it precludes us, me in particular, from writing about this subject because I'm now an advocate. So that's what set this whole thing in motion. So in mainstream, like in mainstream media, you cannot be, uh, uh, it's not advocacy journalism, right? He's, his point is, I mean, his, his alleged point, is apparent point, is that he claims you're an advocate because mainstream media technically you can't advocate uh, yeah, the mainstream media is hung up on this notion of objectivity. Right, right. You know, and, and to me, it's 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 a it's a it's a phony notion. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're not automatons. I mean, we're sure. living human beings, and we filter everything through our our pasts and our preconceived notions. I mean, the obligation of a journalist isn't to be a machine, or or to simply uh, you know take what one side says and the other side says and just give a transcription of the two sides. I mean, that's pure objectivity. Here, reader, I went and interviewed two sides. Here's what one side says. Here's what the other side says. You decide. <laughs> okay. That's objectivity, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but that's not doesn't make interesting journalism. Yeah. And um, I think the, the obligation of a journalist is to be fair, mm -hmm. um, is to go out there and, and gather all the information, to to try not to load up uh, you know, on 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 the facts. You know, to 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 um, color them in, in certain ways. But it is to to sit there and sift through the facts, to weigh the facts, and then write a story that's provocative and interesting and fair. Now, that doesn't mean that story doesn't have a point of view. Um, you know, so right. so anyhow. When, when France killed the story, what was interesting is he never mentioned the story itself. There was no problem with the story itself, um, no um, glaring, you know, bias issues, um, no no uh, huge holes or omissions. Mm -hmm. Simply, he had a problem with my byline, the fact that I was Armenian. Hmm. Um, and that is, you know, the implication of that is is a is a pretty dangerous one for the profession. If we're going to start raising those questions, in other words, hey, your story's fine, but 
you know, you may not be so fine. Well, why, why is even that an issue? If the story's fine, then why, why go to step two and ask, you know, is the writer, does the writer have some kind of uh, bias when the bias doesn't show up in the piece? Mm-hmm. And I think then what you have to do is you have to wonder, okay, can Latinos now cover border issues, immigration issues? <laughs> can blacks, African Americans cover civil rights issues? Can Jews write about the Holocaust? Uh, because, you know, a, a, a Jewish person must believe the Holocaust happened. <laughs> you know, so this, this is what, this is the, the, the illogic that I was facing. Right. Um, you know, in, 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 in the spring of this year with, uh, with the paper. And I decided to then file an internal complaint with our HR people and an investigation happened. The investigation found that uh, his reasons for killing the story, for not running the story, they found that they were baseless. I mean, one, that we did not write a petition. Two, that it was an internal memo simply reminding the paper of its policy on the genocide. That myself and an editor in Washington did not evade proper channels and try to plant this story um, you know, without the knowledge of other editors. Um, that was also kind of a, um, to me, that was uh, one of the more disturbing things that France alleged, because this other editor happened to be Armenian, Bob Orlean. Mm-hmm. So in, in France's mind, two Armenians, one in L.A., one in Washington. <laughs> Conspiracy. Yeah, a little con- start conniving on a story and plant it without anybody knowing. The reality is, is that, that Bob Orlean, the editor, is very well respected back there. Um, he, um, you know, let everybody know the story was coming. Um, I had done a story in 2005 on the genocide resolution, uh, the, the 2005 version of it. So there was nothing, um, you know, uh, suspicious or untoward about me doing the piece. Okay. Right. And um, so, yeah, those, those two reasons were found to be baseless. And the paper was left with, um, you know, with this, with this problem, you know, we, we did not run a story based on um, reasons that ended up not, not, you know, not, not having any merit. You were, you were still at the paper then? I was still at the paper then, but it was pretty clear as I was um, challenging France that, um, that I was actually, um, you know, jeopardizing my career. It mm. would have been almost impossible to, to work at a paper where the managing, you know, where I've challenged the managing editor in such a way. So, um, and you did it, it, it was public, so... Yeah, it, it got public. Um, did you want it to go public? You know... At the time. What I did was, and looking back, it may have been a mistake, but I wrote a memo to the other five reporters who signed that memo, uh, that letter to our editors in 2005. I wrote them an internal memo and when this was all going down, basically saying, look, you need to know as, you know, as signers of that letter, that um, here's what's happening. Um, basically, the the France doctrine is is that all of us who have written signed this letter are now precluded from ever writing about the Armenian genocide again. Hmm. And um, I wrote a lengthy kind of explanation of that, and that memo then got leaked out to one of the blogs, LA Observed, hmm. and then. France felt compelled directly to comment to L.A. Observed, repeating his allegations, which were, you know, baseless uh, against me. And then the, the, the editor, O'Shea, got involved, and the publisher, uh, David Hiller, got involved. So it got to be pretty messy pretty fast. And the Armenian community got involved. Well, the Armenian community, what happened was this. Um, I kept getting calls, like any journalist from, from sources, saying, hey, when's your story going to run? When's your story going to run? And I had told um, folks, um, people that I had interviewed, Armenians and others, that it was going to probably be in the front page on this one particular Saturday. It did not run that Saturday. It did not run that Sunday. And by Monday or Tuesday, I was getting calls from them wondering what had happened. Mm. And I felt it was my responsibility to tell them, listen, the story has been... Um, basically spiked mm-hmm. and they asked why and I said well um, you know you're gonna have to be, ask the editors that and so that was enough for the Armenian community to wonder that something had happened and they got involved and um, 
And then when this thing got on LA Observed, um, and they found out the, the reasons why they, um, you know, they they they, get, they got together, and I think in one day they actually wrote four or five thousand emails to the LA Times, um, uh, you know, complaining about my treatment and 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 the and the, and the decision not to run the story. Um, so it got yeah it it, it got to be um, you know a, a community matter at that point, and um, you know ultimately the Times uh, we we you know I. I an attorney, and the uh, there was uh, you know we were right on the brink of filing a lawsuit, and that's when you know fortunately cooler heads prevailed, and and we decided to uh, you know to, to settle, and, and the settlement was um, yeah I can't really talk about the settlement it's a right. it's a you know there are non-disclosure things in there, uh, but I, I think it was a fair settlement. So you're happy. Uh, because now it's you, you're free to write, uh, do freelance writing, and well, yeah, I mean, free, uh, okay. the life of a freelancer isn't the best, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I have a my third book is due at the end of the year, so I'm working hard on that. All right, it's yeah. a, it's a collection of stories about um, about California. Uh, some of the pieces appeared um, in West Magazine. You know, we had a wonderful run at West Magazine. Hmm. Um, we in in March of 2006 we launched West Magazine to much fanfare, and the idea was to cover the West, California, in all its regions in this kind of provocative uh, literary way. The, the Times launched it. Yes, yeah. our, our 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 new Sunday magazine. And by uh, December, West was basically gone. It mm. had a nine-month run, and um, in fact. Um, you know, it was recognized by some of the journalism, uh, the the, the uh, journalism competitions and contests as as, as the best sure. Sunday supplement in any newspaper in the country. Um, but it it was losing some money as new ventures often do, and it got replaced by a, a magazine that's still called West, but it couldn't be you know more different than our West. This, this West, I think, is a monthly, and it's just totally focused on celebrity, right? It's like fashion, yes, yeah. um, house, you know, furnitures, furnishings, things like that. So, anyhow, we had this wonderful nine-month run, and, and some of the stories out of there. I did one story in particular. I mean, it was an eleven-thousand-word piece wow. with these incredible photographs by a photographer named Matt Black, who I teamed up with in the past on stories about the Black Okies. And we did a piece called the, the Summer of the Death of Hilario Guzman. And basically, we, you know, we followed one family from mm. the highlands of Oaxaca yeah. to the raisin fields of Fresno and just documented their life back and forth across the border through harvests, through a death in the family that ended up, you know, making things already that were already bad, just much worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we just, I, I just tried to explore you know the issue of immigration from from the dirt. You know, right. and and um, anyhow, it was it looked like a an issue of time. You know, the old uh, the old um, uh, Life magazine. Um, you know, mm -hmm. with, with these wonderful photos Photo, and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and so that's the kind of stuff we were doing. And some of those pieces will be in my next book. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to you know being unburdened of the journalism in 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 in, in now. now well, at least the newspaper work, and now delving into other forms of journalism, and hell, maybe I'll even write an, an, a novel or something along the way. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Uh, do you retain the rights to the articles you wrote that you, so you can use them again? Um, yes. I mean, the, the Times is, is is usually pretty good about um, about um, you know letting us use our. I mean. Sonia Nazario wrote, wrote, you know, she had her piece about Enrique's journey and turned mm. it into a book. I mean, a number of folks have done that. Um, my, my pieces um, will be substantially changed when they get into the book, um, uh, just because you know I want to write them longer or or do some things that I, I wasn't allowed to do in the piece itself. So, um, you know, the pieces. Um, you mean make it more literary? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, I mean, we were able to do quite a bit of literary journalism in West Magazine, but but still, not, you know, it, it's. I, I don't think you could just take the pieces and plop them in a book. 
<laughs> you've got yeah. to rework them, redo them, update mm-hmm. them, all that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm, I'm doing yeah. now. And then I'm doing several, most of the pieces are going to be original pieces that have never appeared anywhere. Do you think, uh, I had, uh, I think Jeff Brody on uh, earlier, a few uh, weeks before this, and um, he's a journalism professor at Cal State Fullerton, uh-huh. and he was a reporter for the Register before. Yes. And he, uh, he covered Little Saigon. And we were talking about literary journalism at some point, maybe I'm not even sure if we did it on the air. And he was saying that at his school they teach them uh, the students basic journalism first and then only get to literary journalism in the maybe senior year. Um, so well, they have a basic you know, background in, in, in researching and doing actual journalism. I know literary journalism is different. But well, it's very tough. I mean, you know, I, I was... Um, 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 at UC Irvine, they actually have a program, right. a literary nonfiction program, and um, and um, you know Barry Siegel teaches it, and a friend of mine, Jesse Katz, who's a writer for LA Magazine, was teaching a course there. I'll teach another one. I, I went and lectured, and hmm. and uh, you know the kids are given these assignments where they have five, six weeks, seven, eight weeks uh, to do a piece, and you know it's enough time to to uh, to get into some real trouble. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But, you know, these kids are all... They have no background. Yeah, they, it's very tough. I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're not only having to, to um, you know, get get extraordinary detail and get close to your subjects in a way that allows you to, to you know, bring back to the reader, um, you know, things that they don't normally get in a, in a usual story. But then you have to pull off the art of writing it. And, and these kids had spent a good deal of time just reporting and were giving themselves, you know, a week to 10 days, 12 days, you know, to write it. And there's no way they were going to pull it off. Yeah. Um, you know, my fear is that we're going to lose, you know, I, I think the LA Times was, for, you know, for years was, was the paper that did literary journalism the best. Um, the long, the, the like, long form. Yeah, yeah, the front page, left column, or whatever that was. Yeah, there was yeah. column one and, yeah, and other yeah. things. And I, I just don't think there's the appetite on the part of the editors for that anymore. Um, the question is, is there an appetite on the part of readers? Well, you know, I think there is. Um, you know, there's this notion that uh, seems to rule the day, which is, uh, hey, we've got the Internet, we've got the computer, everybody's got these wonderful thumbs that they, that they you know, these very facile thumbs that they do things quickly with and they can access this and that. They don't have patience for long stories anymore. Um, I mean, that seems to be, you know, the, the thinking. Um, and yet, when I did that Guzman piece, I had, I think, four to 500 letters wow, that's from, a lot. from readers yeah. responding to it. So I, I do think there's a place, and it's maybe what we do the best, mm-hmm. for folks to pick up the paper lose themselves in a story that may take 15, 20 minutes to read, and they're taken to a whole other world. For sure. That's something that no other newspapers or, or the Internet, you know, that has, they have a hard time duplicating that. It's what we might do differently and do better than anybody else. And, and now we're, we're losing that. And I, I, I don't think the readers of the Times are going to find those kinds of stories very often at all in the paper, and that, that, that's, that's sad. Even probably New Yorker has cut down on, on the length of its articles, right? It has. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the New Yorker's cut down. I think Harper still does some, some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, basically the, that kind of journalism is, 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 is left for, for books to do. Um, so Yeah, it's sad, yeah. It's 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 a whole change that that is growing out of uh, of the notion, and I don't know if it's a if it's a, a, a I don't know how the notion got got planted. Well, I guess I do, but you know the idea that people just don't have the patience anymore to 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 you know to delve into something that requires you know some more work than. <laughs> It's attention attention deficit disorder. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know the question is, is you know, I, I I think all these gadgets and gizmos are are creating uh, a different sense of timing in people's heads. I mean, they have a 
whole different rhythm about things and, 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 and maybe we're we're training people not to have that kind of patience. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I was just at a meeting where a colleague said that if an email is more than two screens long, he won't look at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the question is who's writing that email? If it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I may not read it either, but if, if someone who can write, I, I, I certainly, I'll yeah. certainly finish, you know, two, three pages on it. I'll print it out, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about this whole um, thing about uh, the editor, you know, the who, he left, right, Douglas France? Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the end of the story is, is, you know, depending on your point of view, is either, you know, funny or ironic or whatever, but yeah, Doug France... Uh, a few weeks after this thing got resolved on my end, um, resigned from the paper. And um, he's gone back to Istanbul to be the Wall Street Journal's uh, bureau chief, Middle Eastern bureau chief from Istanbul. And when I was in the middle of my fight, I did some research on France. I really didn't know him because when he came to the paper as managing editor, I had gone over to West Magazine. I was working, um, you know, under... Um, you know, in the features section, as opposed to the news section, huh. where I'd been most of my career. The, he was you know, a he was a foreign correspondent. Wasn't he had he? been a foreign correspondent yeah, yeah, for the New York Times and for yeah. us, and he'd worked out of Istanbul before, and he'd upset Armenians before with some of his coverage, um, you know, of of issues in Turkey and mention of the Armenian genocide. He had done some equivocation on his own before as a reporter, and. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think he has some very strong feelings about Turkey and Turks, and I, and you know, to me, the the irony is is that um, you know he was accusing me of having some bias, and I think some folks felt that you know maybe he was the one who had the bias. I I don't know, yeah. I don't know, I don't know yeah. enough about him. Yeah. I know he's a I know he's an excellent journalist. I mean, he's yeah. a very well respected reporter, uh, a, a a great digger, um, you know. So. Um, yeah, I remember reading his pieces in the Times, uh, both Times, and uh, yeah, his investigative reporting pieces. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think we lost, you know, when he when I think he, you know he had never been a manager before, and I think that showed itself in my deal where mm-hmm. he, he made some decisions that I think were were wrong. But um, and so you know maybe it's best that he returns, uh, you know, you know to to the field. He um, was close to the Armenian consul, right? I mean, not Armenian, the Turkish consul. Well, that was the allegation, the allegation. that he was that yeah. he yeah that he had you know and, and I'm sure he you know obviously you don't cover Turkey that long and not have friends there. some friends or acquaintances in you know that are sure. that are in the Turkish government, um, but yeah, yeah I, I you know it was yeah the, the the kicker of the story is is that France goes back to Istanbul. <laughs> yeah, so the Turks still deny that it happened. The the Turkish government. Um, and obviously the the, the whole uh, nationalistic movement, the right wing nationalist movement, in Turkey, they they they, they are adamant um, deniers of the Armenian genocide, and um, and there's all sorts of uh, you know racism against Armenians that I, I think that plays into that. Um, but if you look at just just I mean the the the, the evidence is overwhelming. And, and you know, you every genocide Holocaust scholar um, of any note who's done any research on this is is just bowled over by the evidence of a genocide. And now, the you know, Turkish um, American Turkish historians are looking back. Um, there was a book um, called The Shameful Act this last year by Tanner Aham. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, you know, a, a Turk who who's left Turkey and, and got back into the National Archives over there hmm. and came out with this very compelling book that, that just laid out, you know, documentary evidence of, of, of this being a genocide, kind of systematic, planned, and uh, really with a lot of parallels to the Holocaust um, oh, and to come. Yeah, and also there was a editor, right, who was killed. Haran Dink, yeah. an Armenian... Um, a Turkish Armenian journalist who had a, a, um, a newspaper was assassinated in in, in uh, Istanbul, uh, and recently, and he was, you know, someone who had made statements about the genocide happening and everything else, and, and the nationalists 
you know, there was there was a whole nationalist uh, kind of these ultra nationalist uh, conspiracy to um, to 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 assassinate him. So um, yeah, it's it. Anyhow, so there was a lot of reasons for this story that I had written to run. Um, it ended up not running, and then they assigned um, a new story to another journalist uh, at our paper, hmm. who did a, a, a much more kind of um, you know everyday piece about uh, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. chances of this genocide resolution passing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my 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 piece. They took a few graphs from my piece. Actually, um, uh, over my opposition, I did not want my piece at all kind of cannibalized and put into this new piece. For sure. But they decided to do that, put a few paragraphs in there, and they stuck my name at the end of the story. Really? Yeah. Uh, as contributed. Uh, as a, yeah, yes. Contributor. Oh, wow. How about um, when you were, the, do you miss leaving the Times then? I, I I love the LA Times. I mean, it gave me a chance to. I mean, over the years, um, what happened was when I when I first joined the Times, I was in the San Gabriel Valley Valley at a time when there was this incredible ethnic transformation going on. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, we you know we did some of the first stories about the rich kids uh, being sent from Taiwan to yeah. live in these mansions by themselves in San Marino. And then I went to Monterey Park and did, um, you know, uh, several front page stories on just the, the suburbanization of, of the San Gabriel Valley from Monterey Park, you know, all the way out east. The rich kids were the parachute kids. Yes, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I did pieces on, on the Viet- you know, Vietnamese, uh, Chinese kids. And I mean, just, mm-hmm. we did some really, really, really special stuff. Um, and, um, and, you know, documented, um, you know, all those changes. And uh, so I, I became, I, I guess I was the Asian reporter at the Times for three, four years. And then... Um, oh, at that time, uh, if I could follow up on that, uh, were, were the police treating the Asians as gang members? Yeah, we did some pieces about how they were, you know, any time there was an Asian kid with his hair cut a certain way, driving a, a certain <laughs> kind of souped-up Honda, yeah, Honda. Yeah. They, they were just stopping them and photographing them. You know, just there yeah. was just that 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 that, that became the, the you know right the, the pretext. The, what month was? What year was that? What, around what uh, we did those pieces in um, in in eighty seven, eighty eight, mm. um, and um, in the San Gabriel Valley. In the San Gabriel Valley, and then what happened is is they were running in the San Gabriel Valley section. Then at some point, mm-hmm. they started running on the, the front page of the newspaper itself, and we did a whole special section. Under an editor called Don Hunt, who just gave us this freedom to go mm-hmm. out and, and 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 spend a year documenting this thing. That's what was so special about the Times, you know, to take a year and put three reporters and say this story is so important that we're going to put resources into it and we're going to write it and write it, and, you know. And so we wrote these long, lengthy pieces. Yeah, in 1993, I, I started a group in Orange County. To fight this this uh, mugbook idea, yes. mugshot idea, and then huh. we, we got the ACLU involved, and they sued actually the Garden Grove police over the case of uh, three girls that were stopped and photographed. Yes, and uh, I did some op eds on that later. Uh, for oh, the, I wasn't aware of that, but that, yeah, the, that, 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 that times, that, yeah, yeah, that's okay. kind of the um, genesis of it. Yeah. Right, right, right. It, it started. I mean, we started documenting. I'm sure it was happening. I think it started happening as a practice in the mid to late '80s. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then it became um, pretty brazen at some point. Yeah, yeah, and then they, they because of the lawsuit, I think they kind of backed off. But now they still have photographs because they, the photographs they they just they have people in the schools because they're police officers stationed in each school probably, and they get the yearbook. That's what we heard. They get the yearbook of the students and they keep those and uh, they can track people down that way. Well, I think what what happened too is, is then they started recruiting some 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 Vietnamese and Chinese and yeah. others to to because at this point in the, in the mid eighties they were you know they had no way to understand those communities right. at Before all. Before that, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, how about uh, when you moved to Fresh Central? Yeah, what happened was yeah, yeah I got what I in um in nineteen eighty nine. 
my mom had passed away, and I decided to return to Fresno to write a book about my father. My father was murdered when I was 15. It, oh, was, a cr it was a crime that was never solved. And it was it was just this complicated story of, uh, you know, I had a grandfather. Both my grandfathers left Turkey um, escaping the genocide. Mm. They both came to Fresno. My grandfather, Aram Arax, which is actually a pen name, is, is he took the name of the river, the Arax River. Yeah, a lot of it's people Arax. did that. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people use other names. Yeah, and he was a he was a writer, and um, um, and he actually hid in an attic for uh, a year to um, to um, you know survive the, the genocide, and um, and when he came down, um, he you know started writing poetry, and uh, took this pen name, came to California started working as a fruit tramp up and down the San Joaquin Valley picking, you know, grapes and peaches and plums mm. and potatoes. And um, so it was this story, this generational story of how we got to America, you know, then. And um, the, the book is not, not my name? Uh, it's, yeah, it's in my father's name. In my father's name. name. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 it's, and it's, it's this memoir and it's a family history and it's a story of my father who then becomes, um, you know, this assimilated Armenian and, and he's this incredible you know, football and baseball star in Fresno, and he gets a scholarship to go to USC. Oh. Uh, he comes back without graduating, and he works in our family uh, grocery stores. We had a chain of independent grocery stores in Fresno, and one by one during the price wars when Safeway and others came into the San Joaquin Valley, we lost those stores. And I mm. remember that one day my dad came home and said, well, I've sold the last grocery store. I've gone into the restaurant business. And so we went down, I took a look at his restaurant, and, you know, it, it, there wasn't much of a restaurant there. It was a kitchen in the back where you could serve, a, you know, some, a, a few dishes, but mostly it was a bar. Mm -hmm. And my dad turned this bar into the, uh, really the hottest nightclub between L.A. and San Francisco. <laughs> I remember in the summer of 1971, uh, Chuck Berry came, and, and he had just mm -hmm. gotten out of prison on some violation of a man act. And <laughs> my dad brought him in, and... And he duck walked across this, you know, this tiny little stage there. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, you know, 1972, my dad goes to work on Sunday evening. He's going to do some mm -hmm. work on the taxes of the books. And next thing you know, we get a call that he, two men have walked into the bar and, and shot him. And um, he fought. He was a tough guy. He fought, got the gun away from one, fired back. But as he was trying to fire back, the gun jammed. And so he was hit with five times, and, and he fought for about 90 minutes in the hospital. Yes. And the hospital they took him to, they, they did not have a blood typing machine. It was broken, so they couldn't get blood to my dad, and he bled to death. Mm. Oh, so I went back. How old were you then? I was 15. Yeah, just turned, yeah, and I, I just, 14, 15, and I just, um, I, um, then years later went back to Fresno. I, I, I think... This thing was probably the reason I became a journalist. I started taking notes and trying to figure out what happened way back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom didn't want me touching it. And then, you know, she passed away at the age of 50. My dad was 40. My mom died at 51 of cancer. And um, Did you get all the police reports? And yes, I got all the police reports. Yeah. I got everything. And um, I ended up spending six years doing this book. And it was probably, you know, it was the first my first book, and it was... You know, I look back and it was probably too ambitious. I tried to pack too much in there. It was a mm -hmm. story of our family and, and Armenian and the story of the genocide. And then it was a story of Fresno and this yeah. incredible corruption, how this mm -hmm. valley had been kind of geographically exiled from the rest of the state and it had its own code of doing business. And there were these little mafias in town that ran, business, that ran the town. Yeah. So it was a story of that, and then it was a story of, um, you know, my dad in this nightclub, and the, and and then this murder. Um, at the time of the murder, um, my dad was upset because he he had found out the police department was involved in protecting um, drug smuggling. Hmm. It's really interesting. The valley became the nationwide hub for smuggling marijuana and cocaine from Mexico to, to the United States. The first major smugglers who were flying airplanes into Mexico and smuggling out loads and loads of marijuana and cocaine were 
boys from Fresno. The freeway or the airways? Airways. They were flying in, and it made perfect sense, and here's why. We were the agriculture, you know, capital of the, uh, of the of the United States. We had all these this open land and all these crop dusters who were out of work most of the year. Yeah. So, and you say these landing strips, and you had these farmers who were struggling to make it. You know, they were having some bad years in the in the late '60s, yeah. and so their kids and the farmers, in many cases, ended up financing their sons and their friends to fly into Mexico with these planes and bring the dope back and then it was sold to the Hells Angels who then <laughs> ended up distributing it through California. So there were some big, big rings and they were being protected by the police. And you know, my dad was, a, you know, he ran this nightclub and he knew all these people because it was yeah. the most popular nightclub, but he was also the Little League coach and the Pop Warner football coach and the cops being involved in this upset him and so at the time of his murder, he was going to the attorney general's office and others trying to get some law enforcement agencies interested in, in, in um, you know, investigating the Fresno Police Department. And so in the midst of that, he's murdered. Two think, men come in. It was never solved. I write the book, and yeah. a few, few years after the book, they get this break. Someone had read the book. One of these guys involved felt guilty. Oh. Uh, he happened to be busted at the time. He, um, he tells police, leads them to someone else who had also read the book, and um, and so they find this one of the gunmen. The one gunman's dead. The other one is still alive. They both come out of Detroit, hmm. and so there was a trial in Fresno, and they found this guy guilty. Did they find out who hired them? Never did because the cops i mean the 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 da went forward with a with a, a theory of robbery oh i see yeah i'm now hearing from that that gunman he's he's in one of the california prisons i used to cover <laughs> he's writing me saying that yeah. you know my theory uh, that this was more complicated and it may yeah. have been that you know that it's it's the right one now i don't know if you know if he's telling the truth or not but sure. so anyhow wow the murder has been solved in one way, mm -hmm. and another way it remains still a mystery. You could write a sequel. Well, that that the the epilogue of that story um, is, is will be in my my next book as one oh, of the pieces. Oh, oh, cool, cool. How about uh, I was wondering? Yeah, you mentioned you covered prisons, and I remember reading your uh, kind of exposés, I guess, of the prison industry. Um, you you covered the Cochrane prison, right? Yes. What? Um, and that was a high tech kind of uh, model, yeah. model prison. After yeah. I wrote that first book, the Times just said, "Why don't you stay in the Valley? There's so much growth going on there. You know, the Valley really is like L.A. I would say now, 1956, 57, mm. you know, where farmlands being paved over in this kind of pell mell, crazy style, and and uh, you know, just just sprawl, sprawl, sprawl." And uh, so they, this paper said stay there. And so as I was uh, here, kind of working as a uh, on our uh, on our state staff covering the middle of the state, um, I started hearing about these shooting deaths at uh, Corcoran. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, mo most of the, the prison building boom took place in the valley. Corcoran was supposed to be this high tech place, and they right. had this unit called the Shoe Unit, security housing unit, and and it was a kind of the prison within a prison mm. for the, the 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 most dangerous they said of the of California inmates the ones who uh, you know weren't adapting well to the system were fighting and things like that so they put him in this shoe unit and basically they were where they were taking these rival inmates and sticking in these little concrete yards and what was happening was, you know, what everyone should have expected was ha what would happen. They they started fighting, and the state had this really perverse policy where, basically, to prevent the fights from turning deadly, there would be a, a shooter, uh, a gunner up in the up above the yard, and he would fire um, wood blocks first and then real bullets next, if these fighters refused to stop fighting. So, in the name of keeping um, you know, the fighters from doing something deadly. The state then did something deadly. And uh, there were, you know, seven, eight shooting deaths at Corcoran and many, many maimings um, during mm. um, 
the um, you know 1980s and 1990s. Corcoran became the deadliest prison in America. Wow. So I persuaded five um, prison guards, correctional officers, from gunners all the way up to lieutenants, to kind of come forward and tell the story of these gladiator days. It had gotten so crazy that that they were at some, some they were kind of putting these rival inmates into these yards, knowing that they would fight. Mm-hmm. People would gather to see the fights, show. and then there would be a, yeah, there would be a shooting. Wow. So these guys came forward and told these stories. We called them gladiator days. Um, the state finally did an investigation in 1997 mm-hmm. of our story. But instead of really delving into what was going on, the state investigation by the Attorney General's office and then um, a special investigative uh, force put together by the governor they looked at the whistleblowers, my whistleblowers. They were investigating the whistleblowers instead of what the whistleblowers were were, were alleging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we went back in, myself and Mark Gladstone, uh, one of my uh, good friends, uh, turned out to be a good friend, very good friend, and uh, my colleague at the Times. The Times. We went in and we looked at this investigation and found that the state, Wilson, Lundgren, had basically conducted this sham investigation and they had whitewashed uh, the, the, the shootings and other crimes in the prison system. And we did a um, three-part series, I believe, then, and then a series mm-hmm. of stories over that next year, I think it was 98, mm-hmm. really yeah. looking at the prison system. And, and then 60 Minutes came in, and Mike Wallace with Lowell Bergman, it was the last time the two of them worked together before the Insider movie mm-hmm. kind of turned them into um, well, not friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so yeah, so... There were hearings, state hearings, and these promises to reform the system. Well, here we are, what, eight years later, seven years later, and you're seeing the crisis the system is in still. Did you, did you get taken off the prison beat then? No, I never got, I, I didn't get taken off the prison beat. What happened was it's, it's one of those beats that, that you know, you, you can burn out pretty fast. <laughs> uh, I made a lot of, um, I mean, the, the prison guard union, Don Novi, the head of it. I mean, I, I they they went after me really yeah. strong. I mean, they did a film, some some DVD on 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 me, and oh, wow. alleged that I had had these movie deals, and that's the only reason that I was hyping up this story. <laughs> it got pretty ugly. I remember the last time I saw Novi, he looked over at me with disdain, and he said, "You mean you're still alive?" Yeah. <laughs> Good so I took that as kind of a kind of okay. subtle and not so subtle threat. Yeah, and um, anyhow, I just I, at that point I was busy writing a second book uh, with Rick Wurtzman on J.G. Boswell, we, um, the, the biggest farmer in America. Mm. It was called the King of California. This was like the last, you know, land and water baron in the West, and so uh, it was, you know, kind of moved out of the prisons and and just went into some other things, and then the prisons uh, ended up being covered by a very able reporter in Sacramento named uh, Jennifer Warren, who's also now left the Times. Mm. Uh, Times lost a lot of great people in this um, in this this last buyout. Definitely, um, yeah. Do, 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 are there? How about the people that left? Do you think that they will be able to write stuff? That that would I, be I sure hope so. It's, it's it's very tough. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, there you've got forty, fifty journalists. Who, if you know, if I was going to start a newspaper anywhere in this country, and and, and you gave me those fifty, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that that's a staff that would be, you know, probably just second to the New York Times or something. I mean, you could you could start an extraordinary newspaper with those folks. You know, they've all gone off. Um, I heard from Nancy Ride the other day, Gary Polakovic. They're all going off. You know, following trying to or something. Doing well, jobs. doing yeah, doing you know the other passions and things like that. I mean, these are good people. They'll find yeah. something to do. But I think that you know that time we shared at the paper, it was it was a special time. I think that there was an incredible run at that newspaper for for fifteen twenty years. They've wiped out the local editions, right, or local coverage uh, in terms of in depth. Like we can, you know, they used to have these section on different minority groups and different community groups. Yeah, a lot of that sections or whatever they call. Yeah, it. there's been a loss of real estate. I mean, you know, you, yeah. there's just not enough 
pages, uh, yeah. pages to stick stuff in. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I I hope that they can just stabilize and 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 then and then start growing maybe a little bit again. It's it's going to be an interesting thing. I do, and I hope readers don't abandon the paper. I hope. You know, that's, that's the worst thing because then, then there's a certain kind of self-fulfilling. Yeah, but it's cyclical then. Yeah, right, right. yeah. How about the, uh, this idea that LA, those LA people abroad and other people, board, whatever his name is, the rich people in LA that want to buy it? Yeah. Think, would that help? Yeah, I once did a very, um, fun in-depth profile on Eli Road and, oh, um, yeah. and it was, um, yeah, I left there convinced that, you know, it, it may have been for ego reasons or whatever, but I, I left convinced that the guy, you know, cared about L.A., in fact, that, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, this this was the father of sprawl, Eli Broad, and, and in a way, his first half of his life had done uh, immense damage to L.A. because he had sprawled the city out mm-hmm. and had um, helped, you know, kill downtown, and then now in his second life, he was doing all he could to, to bring life back to downtown. And yeah, I think, given what's happened, I think it's it, it, it'd be nice to have someone who was local, um, and and someone who who thought that a five, seven, eight, ten percent profit margin was sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just not the way it happened. I mean, the Chandlers decided to look to the Midwest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, so now that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Did, was there a lot of, uh, when you were writing for them after this uh, Chicago Tribune took it over, did you feel pressure to conform to some some other kind of editorial stance? Or, never. Uh, I never had a story. I had one story where or an editor named David Lauder tried to gut it, and I fought the story. I fought that, and, and ultimately the editors above, them, above him restored the stuff. Mm. But other than that Lauder incident, I never had a story gutted or I never had a story killed. And even after the the Tribune took over, I mean, you know, we 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 enjoyed um, a lot of freedom to pursue all different kinds of stories. Um, I just think now that the the, the constraints of space and things uh, are, you know, there's a, there's a whole other reality now. Um, Did they cut back on foreign correspondents? You know, I'm not sure. I think we've, I mean, there's been some some cutbacks in Washington, probably some in the foreign staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still a huge commitment on the part of the the Tribune Company or, you know, the Zell Company now, you know, to, that, you know, to, to cover the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that continues because um, otherwise, to me, it's too parochial of a, of a, Sensibility, you know, that oh, all people care about is local. Well, you know, in LA, what's local? Yeah, really. Mexico's yeah. local. China's yeah. local. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, in terms of the small press and alternative press? Did did the LA uh, Weekly or papers like that did did that affect what the Times covered? It should. I mean, when 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 we had the Herald Examiner, I mean, we we you know they kept us honest. Oh yeah. When you lost, when you lose those papers. Um, a, a newspaper can sit on a story. They can not cover a story because there's not that competition. You know, the weeklies, it's its really improved over the years. Um, they've done stories that, that we don't do. Um, obviously, their their sensibility is different. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's incredibly important. You know, I just saw what me being in the valley did i mean i i would uh, in, in my own small way i would do these pieces that the fresno bead oh, yeah. wouldn't do or the bakersfield california and then the next thing you know a week later they're doing the piece um oh, you know so you know one or two reporters in in a, in, in a place representing an outside newspaper can change the newspaper culture of, of a region right just yeah. by taking some you know some shots here and there and doing some pieces that that are are exposing some of the you know the sacred cows of a place um do, did you see um i know you you don't see yourself as an advocate right but do you see that the role of a newspaper is to kind of cover 
uh, you know, expose the sacred cows, but also cover the underdog also against the... Uh, I, I, I should like to think that. I mean, to me, yeah. a, a, a newspaper um, needs to, to, to go where, where others aren't going. I mm. mean, you know, it sounds high-minded and maybe even a little maudlin, I don't know, but, you know, a newspaper needs to go to these hidden zones, these places where officials don't 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 travel where and, and really come back and, and, and tell these stories that um, that surprise that um, end up shaming people you know I mean that's that's what it's about I mean I mean that's all that's that's yeah. the thing that always moved me and I always had you know now yeah you you take a certain passion into those stories for sure um on a day-to-day thing, when you were working at the Times, did they give you like a lot of time to write write a story? I got a lot of time because yeah. I always found a way to, you know, maybe folks would say that justify. Yeah, that 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 I, you know, that I was one of these prima donnas. I don't know, but I, I had a chance. <laughs> I always had a chance to be on the, one of the projects teams or see, yeah. go off do something long. Um, I never, you know, some some reporters need to see their 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 byline in the paper two three times a week. I was never one of those folks. I always felt that. Yeah, I want to do something that um, you know hit the long ball. You know, yeah. I mean, in, in, on, on a team, you just can't have a bunch of long ball hitters. Uh, you, you need to have a lot of folks that are who are stroking singles and doubles. And um, you know, the long ball hitter, unfortunately, uh, he, he, sometimes they take a big swing and miss. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe on occasions I missed, um, but that's the danger. So, um, yeah, I think a newspaper, a, a great newspaper, has a place. For both those kinds of um, those stories, and people who can do both, who can move back and forth. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how about the in terms of uh, you were based? Were you based in Fresno then? Uh, the uh, yeah, one, once after I wrote my first book, yeah. I, I, I basically stayed out of Fresno. Although I would venture, um, you know, sometimes I do a story in South, sometimes North. I just kind of roamed around, hmm. and then when I was doing stuff for West. Um, yeah, I could. I was really able to roam around. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the best job. It's kind of a. It's just funny that the last job I had was, which was the the, the most short lived, was a you know nine month job at West, and it yeah. was it was the best job I had at the Times because. Um, yeah, I, I was working for Rick Wartzman, who was um, yeah. my co-author in The King of California. Yeah. And um, you know we 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 had spent three years you know beating each other up on our on our book uh so we knew each other very well um you know as as, as writers and editors and so mm-hmm. um so I, I i had an editor who understood me completely um good and bad <laughs> and um and i understood him and and so it, it was it was quite fun and we thought we'd have a three four year run but it didn't work out that way did, did uh are most people now entering the profession through through journalism school or what? How are they entering journalism? You know, I guess I'm going to find that out because I'll probably be at some point teaching a little bit here. But I don't know who's. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what do you what do you tell these kids? Uh-huh. Um, I know what at 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 Irvine that the kids all wanted to go into magazine writing and, and you know the longer forms, which you know, yeah, it's tough tough still. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, God, I don't know where where are we headed. I mean. What's going to happen? Uh, will there always yeah. be a place for for reporters? I think. Will is the internet or the computer a medium that's friendly to to long form journalism? I don't like write, reading long things. I like sitting down in my chair reading something long. Yeah, really. Yeah. Although I guess you could take one of these little jobbers to your chair. I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I guess I'm a dinosaur. Um, well, oh, I I work in a library, and you know they're getting rid of books. Basically, now everything's you know becoming more digital, and so we're like basically you know not even keeping um, magazine or journals that are in print because we have the electronic. You know, I'm, I'm and newspapers too. Yeah, you know, I I uh, every so often I'll, I'll go out and, and and teach these kids how to write their uh, college essay, the the one that. After you've taken your SAT test, oh, yeah. you got your GPA, you have to write a personal statement. Sure. And so I asked these kids, I start off with saying, how many of you read 
newspapers or magazines, <laughs> and I'll have a class of 15, 18, 20. Yeah. One or two will raise their hands. I said, well, do you guys have a need? Is there like a, a need in you for news? And they, they say, yeah. I said, well, where do you get it? And they don't get it. They think they're getting it. They get it off of Facebooks or My This or this. And what they're doing is, is they, they've basically taken this part of us that's curious about the world, and, and you know, and, and maybe you and I take that curiosity and we, and we read something that we think is legitimate. Yeah, yeah. They're taking that and they're reading just crap about you know Paris Hilton and Britney Spears or trading little gossip in their circle, and that is their news. That well, on that note, um, on from crap to um, KUCI alternative uh, programming here on KUCI, that was a subversity program here on KUCI, an interview with Mark Garax about the Armenian genocide and also mainstream journalism. Uh, he left the Times because of a censorship issue over an article he wrote on the debate in Congress about the Armenian genocide. And as we talk, Congress is about to um, decide on whether to vote as a full body um, the House on this issue, uh, thereby angering Turkey, which is an ally of the U.S. in Iraq. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. You can go to the Subversity website at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G.